When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi. Serious. Welcome to High Theory. In this podcast, we get high on the substance of theory. I'm Sharonik Boshu. And I'm Kim Adams. We are two tired academics trying to save critique from itself. So today we are talking to John Lindstrom about ecosphere. And John is one of my oldest friends here in New York. So it's great to have you, John, on this show. As is our custom, I'm going to first ask you to introduce yourself and your work. I'm John, and uh, famous friends with Sharon Bosu, and I'm in my seventh year of the of the PhD at NYU in English and American Literature, and becoming a museum education fellow at the Museum of the City of New York. And I study a number of American authors during the Progressive Era, and think about questions of environment and land work. Not very recently, but recently. You have a book out, so please talk to us about the book. True. So one of my authors who I'm really interested in and have been for a while is Liberty Hyde Bailey. And a friend of, and I recently co-edited an anthology of Bailey's garden writings called the Liberty Hyde Bailey Gardener's Companion, which I highly recommend to everyone. Yes. So if you're listening to this show, please go and buy John's book and also I mean, as a, a direct manifestation of the studies that he has done for the book, John has been growing beans and other sundry crops in his apartment. Oh, man. Yeah, the bean babies, they were not super successful. But we've had much better success, surprisingly, with tomatoes, Rutgers tomatoes, which are big beefsteak guys. And we're growing them in our living room window. So it's possible. Um, we've got some basil and trying to grow some hot peppers but they're being quite shy but yeah bailey's um writings really kind of inspired a lot of that activity i think today we are talking about really really big questions and john will tell us what the meaning of life is if i'm understanding it correctly oh yeah so so <laughs> john what the heck is an ecosphere or the ecosphere yeah, well, so my understanding of it is that uh, we'd probably say the ecosphere just because you don't know any others, and I'll I'll get to that. But yeah, so the 
what the heck is the ecosphere? I guess it's this term, and it hasn't been widely picked up, although there's some interesting work that's being done right now. Um, it's a really lovely little article called Ecospheric Care Work by a friend of mine, Aubrey Strait Krug, um, was published this past year. Um, so it's starting to get picked up, particularly by some quirky agrarian folks out at the Land Institute in Kansas, which is where I learned about it, um, people like Wes Jackson. But the idea, as I understand it, was really developed by an ecologist named Stan Rowe, um, who's a Canadian ecologist, in the 90s, early 2000s. Um, Stan's no longer living. If you have a library uh, account, you can look up some really cool uh, videos that he made in the 90s that are like the environmental version of like Cosmos by uh, Sagan, Carl Sagan. Oh, yeah. Anyway, um, he's, he's a kind of lovely thinker. He's an ecologist and philosopher. He's concerned about representations of the earth and of people's place in the earth and how we kind of go through our lives um, as parts of this planet who are also responsible for anthropogenic climate change and the most recent mass extinction event of the planet. And the, the ecosphere is helpful in terms of understanding the earth in terms of life and what our place within life is. So one of the most clarifying moments for me is when he actually quotes this ecologist named Rapport. Mm -hmm. Buddies at all. I'm not sure who they all are. Um, but they, they're talking about ecosystems and what they're getting at. The thing here is low form, quote unquote, lower forms of life. We often think, and I'm talking like below the organismic level, we often think of as alive based on the context in which they exist, right? So DNA or like the organ of an animal. So like your liver, for instance. Okay doing a bit of fine whiskey right now, so thinking about my liver. <laughs> um, my liver is alive to the extent that it's part of the organism that is me, right? But for some reason, we equate life with organisms. He describes this as a metaphor where life equals organism. And so we think of it as something that organisms possess. In fact, we know that's not really how it works, right? Like we wouldn't be able, like an organism anywhere outside of our planet is not alive unless you carry a little bubble of Earth with you, right? Like an astronaut in your spacesuit. So he quotes this guy, this essay by Report et al., where they, this is a 1991 essay, where they say, ecosystems are, to be sure, a supraorganismic level of organizations but are not superorganisms, since each level in the hierarchy has both unique properties found only at that level and parallel properties with other levels. Accordingly, ecosystems are not organisms, but they are. there are analogous properties that may or may not function in the same manner at the two levels. Is this like, like an anti-Gaia hypothesis? So that's where this is going. So the idea is we actually don't live outside of the ecosystems in which we live. So you can describe life as actually a property of ecosystems. Similarly, you can describe ecosystems as a property of what Roe calls the ecosphere. And that's partly because 
ecosystems need the larger ecospheric context in order to live. And he even says, you know, well, you can even go further, like you need sunlight, which, you know, comes from outside of the ecosphere. It's not like this is a self-contained whole even itself. But yeah, so the, the, the quote that I was just giving is sort of recognizing not only that perhaps life can be a quality higher up than the organismal level, his issue with the Gaia hypothesis, that you, which is Lovelock's idea, mm. that Earth is a super organism, is problematic because there are basic properties of the ecosphere that are not possessed by organisms, like climate, right? right? The jet stream. These are emergent properties that exist only at the level of the ecosphere that are part of life. And part of what he's doing is he's saying, like, so things that we think of as not alive, like, you know, molecules in the air that are part of planetary climate, perhaps those are part of a larger thing that actually does possess life. So it breaks down like the biotic, abiotic boundary. Yeah. And so the ecosphere is just supposed to help us understand ourselves as part of a larger living thing and kind of displace, you know, it's on the one hand, it's a way of displacing the old like myth of person. Let me ask you my second question, which is how do we use the ecosphere? When we're talking about how we fit in this kind of embedded context, we can just use words like earth or nature, right? And Roe says that at some point. What he's identifying is a problem, though, in how we think about life itself. And so the goal is that ecosphere kind of, because it's available, right? Because it's, it's weird sounding, it can open up space for thinking about a larger living entity. And he'll go so far in some of his writing to talk about, you know, what's ecospheric creativity, right? If we think of life at a planetary level, is creativity a property of life? I mean, the ecosphere you could argue by its makeup, created a bunch of different organisms. Maybe humans aren't the only creative force. And you see this even in like the science of plant communication, right? Where people want to talk about how forests think. There's that great book, um, How Forests Think, mm -hmm. or how they communicate. And some people bristle at that because they say like, well, they don't communicate the way humans communicate. But the argument is, well, no, and humans aren't, don't have the only valid means of communication, right? Yeah. And we can stand to humble ourselves a little bit. I really like this sort of capacious way of understanding creativity. I was reading this article about crown shyness, uh, which is, you know, tall trees, when the canopy over, they don't touch each other. So that sort of light shines through and the undergrowth benefits. And it's like a way of sharing resource. What I really like is that this idea, because... You know, I was thinking of like parallel ways of thinking of the world comprehensively. And when, you know, we decided that we will do this episode on ecosphere, I was also thinking about Spivak's idea of planetarity, which is, you know, like it's, it is kind of an, it's, it's very capacious, but it's also a cultural idea. It's a cultural metaphor of comprehensiveness. And I think that these two ideas could also be like companion ideas um, and they could, you know, work really well. But I guess, I mean, before I jump on to the next question, I want to ask you, like, you know, let's say, how do you see, speculatively speaking, this idea benefiting, let's say, policy geared towards climate change, for example? What Roe would say is 
that when you question a policy, especially a policy that's going to impact a large swath of what Leopold called the land community, right? Not just people, but who knows what all. The, the question is how will this affect the health of the ecosphere or the flourishing of the ecosphere before, you know, how will this affect the flourishing of whatever venture capitalist company is trying to a lot of money or something. One of the really important things to me is that we kind of moved past, you know, Rose definition in our use of, of this idea. And because I think he's really situating this within the history of ecology, but I think you can look at lots of cultural traditions from around the world, both within and outside of sort of the quote unquote Western tradition that have a conception of embeddedness within what we could describe as an ecosphere. Like they have an, a, a like ecospherism to their cosmology or their outlook on the world. There are interesting cases, these really interesting legal questions now that are still very fluid about how do you sue a corporation or a government on behalf of the earth? So like the ecosphere could be leveraged in the policy arena in that way. You know, we're trying to protect life here because we as humans value life inherently, even if we're being selfish, but our life is so deeply contingent on larger ecospheric life that we're a part of that it's just really stupid to be doing things that are highly destructive of that life and ignoring most of it because the life of this small group of oligarchs is flourishing or whatever. This is a good place to ask you my next question, which I think you've already begun to speak on, which is how will um, the ecosphere <laughs> save yes, the world? How will it save itself? Um, I think part of the challenge of climate change is coming to grips with the fact that we've been doing it wrong for some people say since the Industrial Revolution, some people say since the advent of agriculture <laughs> um, in terms of the way that we lift calories from the earth to sustain ourselves in increasingly cheap ways, fossil fuels being the cheapest form of burning calories, but also one that has some of the most waste and most deleterious effects to life on earth. So what I find really fun about what Roe does with ecosphere is that he plays with the word. He talks about ecospherism or eco thinking ecospherically. So what, what would it mean to think ecospherically? To And he talks about art too, artistic production. The ecospheric artist is sort of observing the creativity that surrounds them in the ecosphere and mm -hmm. is trying to make it special, I think is something that he says at one point, which like, Rowe's not a literary scholar. He's not an art critic. You know, he's an ecologist. But I kind of love that idea of like make it special because I because I mean, you know, it seems like we really need a worldview transition in order to move ourselves into thinking creatively about how to get out of our dependence on fossil fuels. And there's actually a really great article that was just published early this year by a group of scientists that calls for what they call knowledge humility. Oh, that's a lovely phrase. I really like it. Yeah. This is a group of climate scientists asking for knowledge humility. Another, you know, Wendell Berry wrote a book called The Way of Ignorance, which is sort of provocatively calling for something similar, where when you think about our intelligence as being a very small part of a much larger intelligence, 
which is sort of something that most of the great world religions do themselves. But, you know, we're living in an increasingly secular society, so maybe the ecosphere is a way to think about this. Our intelligence is a small part of within a much larger intelligence that is like ecospheric creativity and and knowledge and information. Maybe that can help us practice knowledge humility as we move forward with our solutions to climate change so that we don't fall into the trap of the sort of technocratic fantasy that all we need to do is shoot a bunch of mirrors into outer space to deflect sunlight and there could not possibly be anything that would go wrong with that. Or the idea that we can keep consuming fossil energy at the rate that we currently are uh, we can keep consuming energy at the rate we currently are just by switching to renewables or something. The same group of scientists is saying that seems like a very optimistic perspective given the data. So by practicing a little knowledge humility, we might have to force ourselves to say we, we can't do all of this. We have to do less. And we have to somehow scale back consumption at the same time that we recognize there are people on this earth who don't have access to adequate resources to just live on this earth, right? So how it's tricky, as soon as you start talking about austerity, it's like, well, but there are enough resources for people not to be hungry and starving and in poverty. So how do you address those crises at the same time that you sort of try as a society to practice some restraint i don't know it's like a huge no fucking challenge you know like it is but it's also like a you know like the one word that has been hovering in the offering in this episode and we haven't mentioned it yet is uh, is anthropocene mm -hmm. i was thinking about this and i also coordinate this other reading group on the post-colonial anthropocene and we were talking about this today only it's a galilean decentering, right it's you you move the human away from the center if at least you cannot move it move the human away from the center in in actuality but you do it in thought so that you know your biases your uh, your intentions your in inflections of thought possibly change that way and that's why i really like this term knowledge humility and i'm going to look this up and just uh, mention everything that john mentioned will be linked in our show notes but i really like this this phrase knowledge humility because it is a it is a kind of decentering, and it is a kind of something that you know we do not tend to do often in academia, which is to say that knowledge itself is a way of admitting uh, the the lack of knowledge thereof. I guess what you were just saying made me think the Enlightenment was really good for decentering the the idea that we were special and in the center of the universe, but at the same time, it kind of created a new sense of special, like a recentering of the human in terms of being supreme intelligence, you know, which is, I've never thought about it that way before, but the way you just kind of brought those things together. I mean, it decentered the human, but then everything that became visible in that process of decentering became the object of our study. And by that process, we, you know, gained. And by we, I mean European continental philosophy. <laughs> Something about the ecosphere does feel a little medieval to me. You know, like, it's almost reclaiming something of the sense of mystery. That's what knowledge humility kind of does that in my mind. You know, it's, it's not saying that we can't know things. And it's not saying that science won't reveal truths, yeah. if I can use that word. But, but it is reinforcing another, when we were talking about policy, um, there's this concept called the precautionary principle, which is also 
works really well. I mean, this is talked about in environmental study circles sometimes. I think it fits really well with the idea of the ecosphere. Because the whole idea is that in policy, if you operate by the precautionary principle, you never do the maximum that you think you can get away with, right? It's never maximum, quote-unquote, sustainable extraction. It's about, let's take the precautions of extracting less than that, right? Whatever we think is sustainable, let's let's shoot lower than that, actually. You know, keep it in the ground. Yes, I think we can end on that both generative and cautionary note. And I want to thank you so much, John, for um, coming on our show and talking to us about Ecosphere. Thank you so much for listening. If you like our podcast, please find us at hightheory.net and on Stitcher and Spotify, on Patreon, or wherever you find your podcasts. Thank you for listening. Have a great day. Thanks so much, Sharonik. And thank you for listening to High Theory. If you like our podcast, please review and subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Patreon, or wherever you get your podcast fix. You can also find us at hightheory.net. Owen Quinn composes our theme music and Sharonik Bosu manages our social media presence. Many thanks to Christian Aviles for guest editing this episode. We hope you have a highly theoretical day.